House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm your host today, Al Warren, joining me from the heat of Arizona. We've got Michael Butterfield. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing well, Al. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. So you got your vaccinations? Yes, I, uh, am, I am partially vaccinated, two shots, and just waiting for another week and a half for it to fully settle in. So wow. hopefully it'll work. Wild. Yeah, <laughs> Very grateful. Great. Yeah. Very grateful that I was able to get that. So you can go to Florida and party with the rest of them. <laughs> yeah, because that was my plan all along. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, um, now today we've got a, quite the story. We've got the, uh, we're dealing with a nonfiction true crime story. Um, we're dealing with uh, a book called Facing the Yorkshire Ripper. And uh, we've got the author of that with us from the UK, uh, Mo Lee. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Yeah. How's it going over there in the UK? You guys are in lockdown again? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Seems never ending at the moment. But I've had my vaccination too. And Good. Uh, people are, are gathering on Monday. We're allowed to meet in the garden. So. And then there's <laughs> the, uh, the barbecue time and everyone's trying to behave and not go too far. But we're doing okay. But it's very difficult in Europe as it is over with you. Yeah. Strange times. Very strange. Isn't it strange to say the words we're allowed to meet in the garden? I know. Who'd have thought it? Hurrah! Yeah. Getting excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> the little things matter. Yeah. yeah, they do. They sure do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's strange. I think one of the strangest things the pandemic has done for me um, is yeah. I realize... Uh, how strangely people act and react to things that go on like this. And mm -hmm. that, yeah. really, that really ties in with your book and, and kind of your experience, too. It's, it's just amazing the different types of um, reactions that people have to um, bad events, bad, bad tragedy and stuff like that. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And we see yeah. that every day all over the you know the world. We see people reacting mm. like, you know, um, mm. so... Um, so how did you get to write a book like what was it i i we know we know what you went through and stuff and we'll talk about that but yeah what, yeah what 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 about this that um made you decide well i'm going to write a book i'm going to tell my story okay yeah because well, that's that, a big question well it is and, but I, um, I think it puts you out in the public right it makes it makes people aware of who you are by doing that so is there what what's your primary reason well, I, I, the book has taken me 30 years to write, and it all started on the back of a investigative journalist TV program, uh, which had unearthed some documents about the case, the Yorkshire Ripper, and I was interviewed, and it raised a lot of questions, and I started to write uh, as the program was aired, I, that was... 1996 and since then I've been in quite quite a few documentaries as a survivor of Peter Sutcliffe the Yorkshire Ripper but yeah, I wanted to tell it my way because by the time you've been filmed and all the best bits have hit the cutting room floor <laughs> they started 
to make me feel like, well, I'm just another victim. I haven't really got a voice. They're not interested mm-hmm. in me as a as a person. It's more of a statistic. And I wanted to explain that there's quite a unique advantage of being part of the story and a victim and a survivor. Um, but all the best bits aren't told. It's always about the shock horror, you know, which mm-hmm. I understand in context. But I needed to redress the balance and put my version of events down. So, so in essence, you're really kind of saying that um, it gives you the opportunity to kind of give out what was really important about the, ex- the experience more than what the shows do. Because, I mean, a lot of the documentaries yeah. and shows are trying to, you're right, they're trying to shock people, they're trying to... Yeah, um, you know they want everybody on the edge of their seat the whole time. And uh, well, I understand that as uh, in the media, and that's part of the narrative, but it's not all of the narrative. So let's let's maybe go through what happened to you. Let's, let's talk mm. about how you faced the Yorkshire Ripper and and kind of what. Yeah. How did it happen? Okay, so I was an art student at. Uh, at Leeds, which is a big city in Yorkshire, and we were being told at the time, because the Yorkshire Ripper had his grip on, of fear on the whole of the county, if not the country, and even the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, was saying that women should not go out alone. However, it was my 21st birthday uh, coming up in the week and I wanted to meet friends to plan a little party and for the first time ever I was out on my own my boyfriend at the time had gone to London to do a uh, be part of a CND march campaign for nuclear disarmament we were all very politicized as young art students and I ventured through town to meet my friends in the student quarter of the city of Leeds and we we planned that we, we didn't have much money we had a couple of beers and then we decided to leave about quarter to ten in the evening it was a Saturday night there were still people about and we walked from the pub up to the park it was dark it was gloomy and cold and my friend said sure you don't want us to walk you into town where I was going to get my bus to the other half of the city no no I'll be fine I'll be absolutely fine don't worry you know I didn't want my life to be managed by fear I was only 20 at the time and so they let me go and I walked through Leeds University campus which was very well lit not many people about because of this this curfew that had been imposed And I thought, I'll take a shortcut. I'll go down this side street so I can get to my bus stop quicker so I can get a a faster bus home. And as I turned round the side of the university campus, there was a light out, a street light out, and it was a little dark, but it wasn't an alley. It wasn't, it was just a main, it was a a two-sided street. And as I walked, I heard this voice as I was halfway down this lane. Hey, you, hi, how are you doing? Really friendly young man appeared. I stopped in my tracks and turned about to face him. And he was really chatty and very charming. And I thought, I must know him. 
you know, he's ever so friendly. He's probably a friend from my student area or in the, in the, in the university. And then as I got closer, I saw his face and I, I didn't recognize him. So I decided to go, yeah, okay, fine, bye, see ya, and increased my uh, pace to get to the main road that was ahead of me, about 50 yards, 60 yards. And as I did, I heard these footsteps behind me, and they got quicker and quicker, and I realized I was in danger. And my knees went to jelly. I had this terrible fear, and I started to run for my life. And as I ran, he ran, and we were both really, really running as fast as we could. Before I got to the end of the road, I felt this massive whack to the top of my head, and all I could see was the pavement coming up towards my face, and that's how I was attacked. So I don't remember anything from that point except waking up in a hospital bed. Jeez. Yeah. Um... Yeah. And and of course, you weren't you. Now, so the Yorkshire Ripper. How how many victims had he had already by that time? Was this something well known? Well, I think it must have been edging up towards twelve, eleven, thirteen, thirteen victims in total that had been reported and acknowledged by the West Yorkshire Police. So it, it, you weren't in fear of, of, of the Yorkshire. You didn't think, uh, it's not going to happen to me, right? That's Exactly, yeah. You know, the, <laughs> you're a young person. You think you're untouchable, don't you? And mm-hmm. it was the first night I'd been out for many times, and, and I thought I was being sensible. It wasn't too late. Um, but we were, we were under a curfew, and the studios, the art studios were empty. No one went out anymore. But I'm a social person, you know, from Liverpool. I like to have a chat and a drink, and, and so did all my friends. So we weren't going to put that off to plan my 21st birthday. Otherwise, I might have thought twice about going out on my own. Yeah, yeah, but you, but I think a key point is it's something you. It's just not going to happen to you, right? That's something that. Yeah, yeah. Know, and as all... a student, as a student from the other side of the Pennines, it wasn't affecting us so much as it was the local population in Yorkshire, and you kind of feel like you're a bit of a tourist in the town, you know. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't our story; it was the Yorkshire story, and we were just visiting. It seemed. Plus, at that time, he hadn't been attacking students or anything. It just seemed like he was attacking uh, yes. working girls and all we, that, right? So. Working girls, women of the street, uh, prostitutes. He was he was attacking them, it seems. But actually, as the years progressed, he would attack students, anyone who was out on their own, no matter who they were. So he wasn't just targeting prostitutes, but that was the general consensus of the press and the media, that he was attacking uh, prostitutes. So so when you woke up in the hospital and, mm. uh, and you realized that someone had attacked you or something had happened, right? Um, yeah. What was on your mind? Were you thinking it was the Yorkshire Ripper or what, what, what came no, across your I mind? Had, I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. 
I was so dazed and all I wanted to do was find my shoes, phone a taxi and go <laughs> home. I didn't realize the intensity of my, my injuries and I was also very heavily medicated and I remember waking up and groaning and then the nurse rolling me over and giving me an injection on my backside and I just fell asleep and I was very drowsy and very shaken and very shocked and very disorientated for many days and weeks afterwards. Because it was much worse than just a blow to the head, right? Oh yeah, it was repeated hammer blows to the top of my head, a puncture, two puncture wounds to the base of my skull, which just missed my spinal cord by millimeters and, and that was with a sharpened screwdriver right yeah sharpened screwdriver yeah and uh, my jaw was completely smashed open cracked open and my uh, fractures to my skull fractures to my cheekbone <clears throat> cuts to the inside of my mouth where my jaw had bitten my tongue you know and, and bruised knees knees sorry bruised knees and hands from where I had fallen so heavily. Yeah, I was really lucky to be alive. Yeah, and can you talk about that a little bit, about uh, Lorna Smith and how the role she oh, played? Yeah. So um, Lorna Smith was, at that very moment, walking at the T-junction of the main road, and she heard me scream, apparently. I let out a yelp. I don't remember. And she stopped with her friend, and she turned around and she could see in the shadows me on the crumpled heap on the pavement and a man over me who was wielding a, some, some blunt instrument. He saw her, otherwise it would have been the final blow for me and he ran off into the dark. So she saved my life. And she called an ambulance, and if it wasn't for Lorna, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. So we keep in touch every year. Very special woman. Wow. And you, you were attacked in October 1980, and I, yes. I read that you were staying with your parents and trying to recover when you saw the man who attacked you on TV when Peter Sutcliffe yeah. was finally arrested. Yeah. What was yeah. that like to see that face on TV and in the context that he had been caught yeah well I was on my own I was watching the BBC news and then they you know it was a huge story and then I saw his face on the TV screen and I recognized him and I fell to my knees I was absolutely shocked to the core but at the same time <coughs> Alan I was I was terrified. I was going to be labelled as a woman of the night, as a prostitute. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be part of that horror story. It was too big. It was monstrous. The whole thing was incomprehensibly terrifying. So I kept it hidden for many years that I recognised his face. For many years. I was too frightened. Uh, all I wanted to do was to get back to art school and complete my final year of my fine art degree. That was at the forefront of my mind. Because if I was going to sit back and 
be subsumed by the pain and anguish and fear, then I don't I don't know what would have happened to me. And Sutcliffe was convicted of killing thirteen women, and I think he attacked at least nine other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you heard that he had killed so many women, did that have any yeah. effect on how you viewed what happened to you? I mean, would it even be possible to feel lucky after what he did to you? Well, it was terrifying to to see all the names rolled out, so many people. And I surely did feel extraordinarily lucky to be alive. And that's what powered me on because I'd, I'd missed, I'd escaped, you know, such a terrible attack. As bad as it was, I was alive and I could walk and I could talk and I could paint and I could draw and I could communicate and I just felt blessed to be alive. And of course, Peter Sutcliffe never admitted that he attacked you. Uh, why do you think he denied that when he already confessed to more than a dozen murders, I think, like less oh. than two days after his arrest? What was what oh. was his reason for that? Well, oh, gosh, that is a big question. I, I think he'd probably done so many, uh, he'd lost track of his records. Also, I think he was withholding the attack of, on me and another victim, Tracy Brown, as a bit of a power thing over the years. I think he thought he held his cards close to his chest, knowing that the police knew, and I knew, and everyone knew that it was him, but he refused to confess. And that has been an absolute thorn in my side all of my life, because he was never convicted. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book as well, because I needed to explain how that feels. So after it happened initially and you were in the hospital, um, did the police suspect that it was um, Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, well, or did they, did they not? That's a really another very good question. What was happening at the time of my attack is that the police were being held to account and there were people saying, how come, after five years, this murderer is on the loose and you've got a, a massive squad of detectives and policemen and women? And they, they were just terrified to have another, another victim on their hands. that had. So they decided to brush my, my attack under the carpet because it was better for them to keep it quashed and the the story of my attack to be hidden because they'd be ridiculed less. So that was their strategy. <laughs> it seems mm-hmm. crazy, but they were so worried about being, you know, judged by the public who who were thinking that they were incompetent and the whole nation was beginning to wonder why, you know, all this manpower wasn't finding this, this, this particular uh, piece of Sutcliffe. But in fact, Behind the scenes, there was another uh, level of detectives who knew it was Peter Sutcliffe, but the upper echelons in the Ripper squad, the higher level thinkers, so to speak, which begs the question, were sidetracked by a hoax tape Mm -hmm. that addressed the Ripper squad and he said that he would attack soon, he had a Geordie accent and was sending tapes and handwriting and the West Yorkshire Police put all their eggs in one basket and decided that this 
this Geordie uh, hoaxer was the killer and no one else could deviate from that, which seems alarming. Even Miss Markle wouldn't have written that. <laughs> it was absolutely insane. And common sense did not prevail at that point. Wow. Well, uh, Peter Sutcliffe was not unique, obviously. I mean, there's a lot of other serial killers, Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer. And the yeah. prominent theory is that they hated women. And that may seem like yeah. a simplistic explanation, but what do you think about Sutcliffe's motivations and how do you think the hatred of women in society contributes to violence against women? Well, first of all, no one is born evil, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a society that, that can make people distort their thinking. And at that time, in the 70s, you know, women were strangely considered second class and they weren't important. It was a very male-dominated society. It was a very sexist society. And you could even say it was a misogynistic society. And that contributed, our, our culture contributed to the making of Peter Sutcliffe because women were page three girls. They were called the birds. Yeah. You know, you weren't supposed to have a career. You were supposed to be a housewife, have babies, look after your man. And, and all of that seemed to be the overarching identity of, of young women at the time, despite the Second World War, where we'd had women pilots, um, women engineers, Rosie the Riveter, we had the female land army. It seems as though that had never happened. And it reverted back to keeping women in their place. That was the main uh, cultural divide between men and women, and that men were much more superior. And you've so said something that... I'm sorry, I was just going to say, you said something that yes. really struck me when you said that back then women were told not even to go out. And about two oh, yeah. weeks ago, a young woman named Sarah Everard was abducted yes. and killed in South oh. London, and a police Absolutely. officer was arrested. And yeah. there's been protests and worldwide discussions about women's safety yeah. in public. And does it sometimes yeah. feel like nothing has changed over the last four well, years? Well, that's a really good point. That's a very, very good point. And I've been interviewed on the radio and the local and the national media about my feelings on that and it is like we haven't progressed for 40 years it was 40 years ago that I was attacked and 40 years ago that Sutcliffe was arrested and here we are having women holding vigils wanting to reclaim the streets and that was happening 40 years ago what's happened to society um, it's, a, it's, it's raised a lot of questions about women's rights and women being able to walk home alone at night. While mm -hmm. we're all very sensible, men and women, about where we walk in the dark. We don't we don't go to places where we think it's dangerous, but it's raised a lot of questions and particularly being a policeman who who assaulted this and killed this poor young woman. It's it's began a, a campaign of reclaim the streets. Yeah, and we're always telling women to take precautions to protect themselves instead of addressing yeah. how men behave. So, Yeah, yeah. And I think that's valid. I think that's perfectly valid. But then that's just human nature. You would ordinarily protect yourself. That, mm. You know, uh, 
whatever. You wouldn't, you wouldn't put yourself in a position of danger. Perhaps that's more at the forefront of the female mind. I don't know. I'd, I'd hate to kind of stereotype, but it's part of, of our society. We, we as women have to be careful. Just goes, goes with the, it just goes with your, yeah, it just, that's how we feel. Mm-hmm. But, but that's interesting because, you know, there are, there are men who also have to be careful. Yes. And yeah. there are, there are also gay communities where you have to be careful where you go. Mm-hmm. And you have to be very guarded. There's, there's always an issue, but at the moment, it's at the fore that it's for women to try and reclaim their nights, reclaim the streets, and, and question why is this still happening. How did you recover then? Uh, you, you, it sounded like you kept it secret for quite a while. When did, I did. When, did you, when did you let people know? When did you come out with um, <laughs> what you were hiding, so to speak? What, when did that happen? Well, in 1993, I'd been in denial for nearly 10 years more. And you know what? It served, it served me well because I, I could just pretend I was fine. I just had an accident, you know, and played it down. Because if if you build it up into something big, it can rather define you. Mm-hmm. So in 1993, the police, West Yorkshire police phoned me to say that Yorkshire Television were doing a investigative job documentary about Peter Sutcliffe and they wanted to interview me well I thought well that's it the cat's out back now (laughs) that's the TV and I had a choice whether I could go on and talk or carry on pretending so I went and spoke but I I didn't show my face on to the television camera I just spoke and they they filmed the back of me and me and Tracy Brown and they unfolded the story of how the police were criticized by uh, the Byford report, which was an independent report on how the police had mis- not, not miscome, but how the police hadn't managed to catch the Ripper and all of the errors. Well, it's easy in hindsight to criticise the police, but this was the very first documentary that had actually opened up the the, the scandalous and terrible. Uh, misogynistic attitude of the police at the time. You were in a Netflix documentary recently. How does it feel to be able to tell your story to a much larger audience now? Well, I feel like a responsibility as a survivor to to claim some ground in this big story by saying, you know, you can survive. We are more than just you know, what happened in five minutes in my life has certainly not defined me completely. And the, the book has got a unique golden thread through it, and it's about how you navigate uh, unwanted media interest, how you get over the lack of support from the legal system, how you manage to be creative and be the best person you can be despite what's happened to you. And that's that's the unique part about the book. So it's good to be on Netflix, but more recently I was on Channel 5 and that was out about a month ago. And it showed me um, as a survivor and it was aired two weeks after Peter Sutcliffe passed away. So it was very loaded 
Mm-hmm. So I've been in quite a few documentaries and quite a few radio interviews. And um, you, I'm using the press to, to get the message out there that stop defining victims of crime as these insipid, vulnerable women. We know we're not that. We're, mm-hmm. There's more to us all than that. And to try and change the narrative and turn it around into a positive one. Well, and that's interesting that you just said that because you've talked a lot about how expressing yourself through art has been a positive yeah. force in your life. And could you tell us a little bit about that and then also about your uh, how you dealt with your drawing of Peter Sutcliffe, which I found a really interesting <laughs> way of uh, addressing That was great. So um, I returned back to art school after the attack, still with my jaw wide up, and went into the etching studios, and I was looking at a lot of st- uh, political and satirical art, uh, and I thought, right, I need to make a, a comment on this. So I, I started to express how I was feeling in these very dark, macabre drawings, which were really not the kind of pictures that I was doing before, which is all colourful and pretty, and mm-hmm. um, they were very macabre and very sinister drawings of revenge and how I felt about being attacked and about how people were paying to hang the Yorkshire Ripper once he'd been found. And that was my final degree. And then I I just carried on drawing and exhibiting every few years, ever since I left art school. I was fortunate enough to go and live in California and mm-hmm. I did a whole series of works, but ultimately the last piece of work, one of the last pieces of work I did was I went through a very unusual but very powerful therapy called schema conditioning therapy, and it allowed me to look at that iconic photograph of Peter Sutcliffe in his wedding suit with his mm-hmm. bow tie. And a young filmmaker said, do you think you could draw that? I said, yeah, easily now. I'm, I'm over my fear. <laughs> really over it. So I, I objectified the photograph and stuck it to the drawing board and drew it as honest, honestly as I possibly can because I'm quite good at drawing true to life. I, I trained as an archaeological illustrator as well. Oh, wow. And my partner came in and they looked at I'm, what the heck are you doing? You're drawing the man that tried to kill you? I'm like, yeah, no, yeah, I'm just trying to get the eyes right. I can do the hair, but I'm not sure about the mouth. What do you think? Is it a likeness? And I was more interested in getting the likeness and the overall impact of the drawing than the person who it was, mm-hmm. which was a massive uh, leap of, of courage because it didn't frighten me. So this particular drawing was filmed and I was in the studio and I ripped up the drawing of the Ripper into little fragments of paper that fell to the floor and I walked across his face but which was all torn apart and out of the frame of the camera and it was the most empowering thing I'd done. I turned the tables, I turned Sutcliffe into an object and I was I was I was the survivor. It was the most amazing, amazing feeling, and that's written in the last part of the book about how I've survived. Yeah, I'm very proud of that. It was an amazing drawing, amazing likeness. Yeah, 
Well, like I say, you know, if you're an archaeological illustrator for a while, you'll learn you can't really represent things. Uh, you've got you've got to be true to the object because mm-hmm. other other researchers will look at the brooch or the half coin and and check that it's as as and photography can do so much, but the drawings were were for researchers really. So you had to be very honest with what you were trying to represent, and that's what I did. I used that talent to. Um, to draw Peter Suckler's face. Yeah, and you feel thinking about it, <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. And you feel like that was a, a turning point for you. So I want to ask you, uh, you, as you mentioned, last year Peter Sutcliffe was infected with the coronavirus in prison and yeah, died shortly after yeah. that, which some people thought was a very small piece of justice. Where, where yeah. were you when you heard that news, and how did it make oh. you feel? Well, I knew what people were saying. Good riddance, you know. Uh, thank God he's gone, and all the rest of it, and, and may rot in hell, and all of this rhetoric was coming out. But I, inside, I was furious because he'd taken his secret and his pos- the possibility of any confession about his attack on me to his grave. So it wasn't a joyous occasion. It wasn't sad. It made me pretty angry. Um, but the thing is with me is that if I'm angry, I tend to be creative. It's quite a good driving force. So mm-hmm. I've been very productive since and, and still am and, and enjoy my artwork immensely. In fact, treasure it even more now. He, he, didn't, he didn't take that part of me away. He didn't kill me as an artist. He didn't kill me, but mm-hmm. he certainly didn't take my art art. My love of art away. No way. Wow. What do, you, what do you think his intention was? What, when he attacked me? Yeah. Do you yeah. Think, do you think that... Uh, he, like, what do, you, what do you think he was about? What do you, what's your opinion I think, of him? I think where he attacked me was next to a big church which had some grounds behind it and a very low wall. And that's where the light was out. And Sutcliffe was a grave digger. And I think that after he'd got me unconscious, I think he was going to take me into the grounds of the church, which was right next to the student, the student campus. And and really, I, I, I don't say what he could have done, but I think that was what he was intending to do. So what do you want people to get out of your book? What do you hope people take away when they read Facing the Yorkshire Ripper? Yeah, I think what I'd really like them to get out of it is the fact that, you know, you can triumph over these evil things. And it is a unique approach. While true crime has its place, this is a two-pronged approach to telling the Ripper story, which it does, telling the, about the attack, which it does, all of that. It also tells the, the flip side of that in terms of how, how my artwork helped me and how I survived and how I treasured my life. And it gave me an edge. And I want people to go, yeah, you know, that's sweet justice in itself. Say to um, a, a survivor of some sort of crime like this, what, what is your kind of your um, recommendations what sh- what should they do they- well I think 
I think they should talk about it. I think they should get free of charge, proper therapy, proper counselling by skilled people, and I think they should get some kind of uh, support and acknowledgement. I mean, I did have this fantasy where by people who were attacked and these vicious, terrible attacks, I'd raise enough money uh, through a charity called Victim Support, and I'd build a big house on the seafront in on the coast and you could do all your creative work there and talk about your fear both in the same at the same time and so that the fear isn't just said in one way there's an outcome of positivity that should always be sourced or searched for or, or aimed for rather than just retelling the the morbid narrative there's got to be more to to help people who have had these terrible, terrible atrocities happen in their lives, to try and look beyond that, if they can, and, and to take courage. They have courage. They, they, you need to dig deep and find courage, which isn't easy for everybody, and I do emphasize with anyone who's been attacked that it can be very life-changing. What was the biggest challenge for you uh, afterwards? Like, what was it that you had to overcome more than anything. Okay. Uh, well, when you've been hospitalized and you've been sedated for so long and you your physical recoveries are difficult, you know, I couldn't raise my head off the pillow. I couldn't lie flat for three weeks. I couldn't... I was very, very frightened of falling and re-breaking the, the bones in my head. And... Um, I went back to Leeds and with the intention of uh, returning to my art, which I did, but there were times when I did not want to leave the house. I was scared. I was really, really scared because by the time I'd returned in the December, the Yorkshire Ripper was still on the loose <laughs> and I was worried he'd come and find me and finish me off. So that was the biggest, most frightening time of my life. But I managed to get into the art studios. I had I had my final degree, and I had to do that. That had to be my priority, and I, that priority had to had to be the forefront of my mind and not my fear. That was really hard. So it, it it's, it's something that stays with you even to this day, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. It does, um, and, and strangely, it does. But it's not—it's not a companion. It's not a friend. It, it's mm. just part of part of who I am. But I want to raise money for women's aid and for victim support, and I've done that in the past by selling my artwork. And I want to show a positive. Uh, sounds really crazy. How can you have a positive side to the Yorkshire Ripper story? <laughs> but you can. You know, you can. You can raise money. You can give people beautiful pictures of beautiful things. And my website shows all these gorgeous, gorgeous birds, ironically, you know, for the birds. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> and I, I enjoy making beautiful things. And sometimes people look at me and just say, well, how can you do that? How can you do that with what's happening? Well, why not? Why not? I can still draw. I can make beautiful things. And that's... That's what I endeavour to do, and that's what I was put on the planet to do, and and, uh, and not be a victim.
So how much, you're doing artwork, um, you have a studio and everything, what, what yeah. kind of artwork do you do? Well, I draw moths and butterflies and birds and uh, all kinds, but mainly my my the stimulus is to draw from natural forms, seashells and, and nature, that's that's where my, my passion really sits, and to be accurate and honest and, and give a... You can't beat nature for beauty, can you? Really. Mm. So that's that's where I, I um, that's where I start. And I've got two studios. One is a messy studio for doing windy seascapes, which is in a converted garage down at the block of flats that I live, which is all lit up and it's been floored, and I've, I can make a mess down there and make very dynamic um, pictures. And then in the upstairs studio which is next door where I'm talking, I've got planchettes, I've got all my artwork, I've got over a thousand pencils, (laughs) (laughs) paints, acrylics, all kinds of gorgeous paper, it's very organized, I'm not one of these artists who's, you know, messy, I'm I'm, I'm quite systematic about how I produce the work, and um, I sell it in the local art gallery, the originals and prints I sell, in a little art shop in the town where I where I live and where I work and help people. Yeah, it's great. My life is good. <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a good example for people to know yeah. that um, something like that doesn't define you and that no. you know, there's so much more to life. Oh, there is. Know. There is. And it's spring, you know, and oh, you can't be drawing all these gorgeous things that are appearing at the moment. So it's life-affirming. The, the horror story is life-affirming. That's that's my approach to the book, and that's what comes out of the book as well. Yeah. How long did it take you to write the book? How, how long did it take you to get that put together? 30 years. Oh, it, did you actually start writing it 30 years ago? 30 or? years ago, yeah. So I started writing with the first documentary, in 1990, which was aired in 1994, uh, because I noticed that what I said on camera uh, wasn't necessarily what was edited. It was all edited out, you know, because they yeah. had to kind of stick to the stick to their st- side of the story. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, this is my story. I've got this other side. So it, it took many forms, but it, over the years, I finished it properly last year. Uh, before it went into publication, and I, I, it, it had been, it was a, a real lot, lot of work, uh, many, many, many years of work, and sometimes it was too frightening, and I put it away, and then I, oh come on, Mo, you've got to get it out there, and um, through meeting people in the media, I managed to get in touch with a really brilliant um, agent, who managed to find me, uh, Pen and Sword, who published the the book so it's doing well what was it that um actually got you to decide to go to a publisher at an age and actually put it out there was there a particular yeah. point in your life yeah it was the the point the point was when i drew piece of Sutcliffe and ripped it off and it was made into a film i thought well if that isn't worth writing about and getting it out there <laughs> i don't know what <laughs> is and that it was at that point that really fueled me on to Say you know because that that's quite something that is something that's like wow 
So it was that galvanized all of my energy to finally do the last the last lap and get it into print. Yeah, because it's pretty, because in a way you, you, you make yourself vulnerable again, right? You put out this story from yeah, you can everything do. that you went through. You yeah, know? You, you certainly can make yourself, you know, it is a risk, it's a gamble, how you're going to be perceived afterwards. But if you've been honest, which was the most frightening thing that I learned as a writer, is that if you're going to be a writer about yourself, you're going to have to be honest. And I'm like, really? Do I have? <laughs> okay, uh, warts and all, and um, it is an honest book, and, and it, it, it can make me feel vulnerable at times, but there's the honesty of survival and the honesty of creativity uh, that's in there that balances it out, so it's, it's a good read as well, people have said, it's a good page turner, so I was quite... Um, quite brutal with every draft I would say stop rambling this is rambling and get to the chase get to the point and how which pictures can illustrate which chapter best and it's um yeah it's consolidated well I think so now do you have a website yourself yes I do it's artistmolee.com a-r-t-i-s-t-m-o-l-e-a.com Okay, and we'll put that on our website as well. People That's, listening can yeah, they can find have a look. Yeah, have book. a look at yeah. Some very cheerful and rather beautiful pictures. Also on the website, the film is there, so they can look at the film of me ripping up the ripper. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's worth watching. <laughs> yeah, and also the link to buy the book from Pen and Sword is there, so they do they do sales to the U.S., which is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. It's it's really good. And uh, how's how's it been with the art art world for during the COVID in this last year? <laughs> I painted over forty pictures, most of them which are on the website. I just strangely, for the first part of the lockdown from COVID, I was very very productive because hey, I'm in isolation. I've got no excuse. I can't go shopping. I can't meet my friends. Oh, I know. I'll just make more work, more artwork. So I was very, very productive. <laughs> but then during the winter, it's been really hard. Um, but I'm, I, I'm, I, you can't stop me making stuff. That's what keeps me going. But it, it has sounds been very like strange. Yeah. Well, so, I was going to say it sounds like in your artwork too, you do a lot of beautiful things. Yeah. But yet you have there, there was that this Yorkshire tragedy that happened. Yeah. So yeah. there. How you were able to change that in your artwork is pretty pretty amazing. Not to be, you know, I, I'd expect you to be doing something darker. Well, yeah. I did do a lot of dark work early on. That isn't on the website, but it is in the book. In and if you download it, you can on the you can get a Kindle version. You can see all the dark, macabre, sad, gloomy, angst-ridden artwork, which is a very good outlet and it was a very good vent. But you can't you can't sustain that you just go nuts you know and then within within a short space of time once I'd got got that all out of my system I I was drawing lizards in Greece and dragonflies and swallows and 
you know, it doesn't take much of a shift. But I'm the kind of artist that will move on. I, I get bored quite easily. I don't have a particular style except this true representational um, way of, of responding to the natural world. And that that's uh, something that will never part with me. But, yeah, the dark work had its place and it was important outlet because I, I couldn't talk. That was the thing. I couldn't say anything because I was so frightened of being judged mm. at the time as a young woman for being in the wrong place. And, and I just thought, well, the only outlet I had was through a visual representation of how I was feeling. So that served its purpose very early on. Wow. You think you're going to write some more books or more <laughs> about this or is this done? Well, I think there might be another version. I started to write two chapters, one after I was interviewed, uh, because the police started to identify me more formally uh, as a victim of Yorkshire Ripper. For years, it was all a bit un un unclear, but as it's become clearer now. So that, that's been quite a consolation. And I also wrote a chapter about what was happening in the UK when Sutcliffe died and the commentary and how that was perceived. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I'm, I'm also aware of what's happened with, with uh, Sarah Everard, and that's brought up a lot of issues. And I'm currently working on a street art project about how forgotten female victims of violent crime often fall through the legal system. And that's, that's going to happen in May, because in May... Peter Sutcliffe would have been would have been 40 years since he was convicted at the Old Bailey. Wow. Mm -hmm. So there's something so, something to look out for, and I'll put the news yeah. on my on my website when that's happening as well. So a tough question: Did, mm -hmm. Have you been able to forgive him? Mm. Well, you say him as though he's a person. It, yeah. It's really odd, you know. He's 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 kind of yeah. like a nobody because I didn't know him. Mm -hmm. um, what I can't forget the the whole terrible, terrifying grip that he had on on the nation and the influence that he had on on you know the streets and the impact that the media had as well. The friend, the media frenzy who also contributed to this monster being, you know, emerged when he was just an ordinary bloke who was a truck driver. So um, it never it never really leaves my mind, but it certainly doesn't occupy it 24-7. And if, if it does come up, you know, I really feel very, very honoured and proud to be able to talk to you on your radio show. Then I will. I'll talk about how, what it's like. So it starts to demystify these these victims you know um, and that we can all everybody has a story everybody has a tragedy you know but they're not often given a chance to voice how they've recovered and i feel very very pleased to be able to do that wow we're glad you did and yes. uh, thank you very much yeah thank you very much for coming on Thank um, you. The book we're talking about is Facing the Yorkshire Ripper, The Art of Survival, and our guest is the author, uh, Mo Lee. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. 
show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.